Go ahead and take your Bibles out. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. 5, 3 through 14. That's what we're going to look at together this morning. Last week we saw in verses 1 through 2 that we are called to imitate God, which is a high task for all of us. That we are to walk in love just like Jesus had walked. And so we, walked, we looked at that, again, those first two verses. And this is a high task that we should all take very seriously. We just sang a song, you know, How Great Is Our God, uh, whatever else it said in there. But it could come across as a question. I know that's not how we were saying it, singing it. But it could come across as a, que- as a question that we could ask ourselves. How great really is our God to you? You know, we have these people who are better than us at writing poetry and lyrics and music, and we sing the words that they write, and we're grateful that they do that because it hopefully helps us express our relationship to God and what we feel. But really, in your life, how great is God? Is he worthy enough to be imitated? Is he worthy enough to walk in love just as Christ walked in love? Are we willing to actually do that? Are we willing to actually put on the new man that we have in Christ and to take seriously, to walk in that way? Because when we read that, when we understand that, not just here in Ephesians, but in other places, Paul talks about it, how we are new in Christ, how we were dead and now we have life. If this really is true, then that means that when God saves us by his grace, that everything is different. Everything is new. As a, as a Christian, we should not be able to sit and talk about, well, what kind of worldview do you have? How do you see the world? No, we all have the same answer. We're, we are in Christ, and we see the world as Christ would see the world. That's how we see it. And so we see it according to his word. We have to be willing to say that. And so it really impacts every single part of our life. There is a new, complete shift in ourself and how we view ourselves, but also how we view others as well. And so today what we're going to see is we're going to see Paul continue on describing the life of a believer, describing what it means to have a new self. And I want to warn you because it's not all roses. It's not all easy. This process of sanctification that we go through, that when God saves us by his grace and we are justified, then there's then this process of sanctification, which we are on for the rest of our lives, where God is molding us and making us into his image. And maybe you've heard it said this way before, because it does talk about it. For example, like in, in uh, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like I said, maybe you've heard it said before, as Christians, uh, when God is walking us through this life and molding us and making us into his image, this process of sanctification, it's, it's much like uh, refining metal. If you know anything about refining metal, it's not an easy task on the metal. You pulverize it, it gets crushed, and then it gets burnt, and it melts, and it burns in the fire, and the impurities rise to the top, and those get thrown away. But the, but the metal has to go through a lot in order to get to that process of refining. And it's not pretty. It's very difficult. And it's the same for us in our walk with Christ. I think a lot of people think that, you know, I'm going to go to church. Uh, Jesus is going to do his work in my life. I'm going to accept Christ into my life. And now everything's going to make sense. Everything's just going to be hunky-dory. We're going to walk along in life, and it's all going to be very, very simple. And sadly, I think that's why a lot of uh, what we would call new believers, even though I don't know if they were really believers, we see them leave. Uh, we see them leave the faith. We see, them, we see them walk away, and it's because tragedy has struck, and they don't know what to do with it, because that's not part of what they thought this whole Christian thing is. But Paul tells us something very different, that as we walk with the Lord, he's not going to keep us from all suffering, or we're not going to be able to avoid all of that. No, he's very upfront with us. You're going to continue to go through these things, but know this, he says, this is the comfort. I am with you in it. I'm with you in it. 
It's not I'm going to take the blows for you. I'm going to make sure that you don't get hurt. No, it's when that stuff's happening to you, know this, I'm with you. I'm with you in the midst of these things. And so there's an importance put on the Christian's life to grow in maturity in our walk with the Lord. And what we're going to see today is that we're actually called to get rid of these sins in our lives, no matter what it takes. Whatever it takes for us to rid ourselves of these sins, we, we need to be willing to do it. And so as God shows us our sin, as he reveals our sin to us and says, listen, this is something that you are doing wrong according to my word, our response then is, okay, why? Because we would sing this song, How Great Is Our God. And if he really is that great, then we, we, then we are willing to lay down everything in order for our relationship with him to be growing and maturing in the faith as he's called us to do. So follow along with me in chapter 5, verses 3 through 14 together. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead... Let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. These really are a difficult passage here. And uh, it's not always the sermon you look forward to preaching to let everybody know how sinful they are. Uh, it doesn't always put you on the high end of crowds. They want you to be with them. But since we are going through the book of Ephesians, these are the verses we're at. And so we need to deal with them, and we need to see what is happening here. Paul talks in verses 3 through 7, he says to us very clearly as a church, because remember he's writing to a church, he's writing to Christians, and he says, do not let there be any sin among you. And he says there is unbecoming sin of believers. And here in this section, Paul mentions three of them uh, specifically that he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. And we have to remember, this isn't a complete list of sins, this isn't like the top end of the list either. Like, okay, these are just the worst because this is what Paul's saying. No, I think he's talking to a church that probably was dealing with these things because where this church is located in Ephesus, there is a shrine to a God and part of the worship there is sexual immorality. That's how they would worship this God. They would go to the brothel there. That was part of the church there and serve God in that way. And so Paul was really dealing with something that the, this church would have been going through, no doubt. But yet we do have a list here that Paul gives us. Again, not a complete list, but it is a list, and it's something that we need to look at and take very seriously. Paul mentions sexual immorality here, and you could say this is any sexual relations outside of marriage at all. This is what Paul is pointing us to. Apparently, again, not just a problem for us today in our society, but also a problem back then. And we sadly see this still run rapid in our society. It's all over the place. But sadly... It's even crept into our churches. Today, if you talk to a lot of teenagers, and probably even teenagers that you know that you would think are good, upright teenagers, if you ask them the question about sex before marriage, it really would sound weird to them. Because what they're taught, what they're taught in school, what they're taught in our society, what they're taught on TV is, how could you ever get married with somebody before you have sex with them? How do you know if you're going to work out? How do you know if that relationship's even going to be viable if you don't actually try first. It's just like eating some food. You don't go and take a big bite of food that you're kind of curious about. You take a little bite of food first. 
is this any good? Uh, yeah, no. Well, that's what we should do then in our relationship with the uh, people that we love sexually. Right? That's just the understanding in our culture. And I do believe that it's crept into the church in a lot of different places. And we could talk about how we try to teach that to our teens. That's for a different discussion. But I pick on the teens, but I also want to pick on us as adults. I remember as a teenager sitting in these pews, sitting in these different classrooms within this church building, being taught about how bad sex was, how you shouldn't do it before marriage, all these different things. And it really was uh, nerve, it made you nervous. That's what it did. And I knew that this was what the Bible said, but I always wondered, even in my ignorance as a teenager, I always looked around because I, I knew the struggles that I had personally with it, but I also had to think adults did too. And one of the things I saw within our church was a lot of divorced couples, the divorced people, and they were dating. And they were dating for a really long time, and I never heard anything said to them. Never. It was never brought up. It was always brought up to me, the teenager, as if we were the only ones that struggle. I dare say the biggest form of sin when it comes to the church, when it comes to sexual morality, probably isn't with our teens. It's probably with our adults. I remember thinking that when I got married, my sexual sin would end completely because that would solve it. It'd be over. It wouldn't be this thing that I'm not allowed to break through until I'm married. But when I'm married, I get to break through it and so everything gets solved and I found out about two days in, wrong. I found out this doesn't, it doesn't work this way. Paul tells us to abstain from sexual immorality. Again, it's not something we like to think about. We like to throw that on our culture. But again, he's talking to the church and the people in the church. Rid yourselves of sexual immorality. And then he goes on. He says the word impurity. Now this can include all kinds of sin beyond just sex. But the problem is I think this one gets tricky. Because we get so debased in our mind. We, we're so surrounded by sin all the time. I think it becomes a problem for us to understand what is pure and what is impure. It gets difficult, and it seems as generations go on, the line changes. The line moves. The line seems to shift. What was absurd to think would happen 40 years ago, commonplace today. You know, I remember on TV seeing somebody kiss. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, what? Everybody does that. Well, what is that? It's, it's, the, it's the line kind of changing. But again, while we want to throw that on society, we have to be careful because it does infiltrate the church as well. And Paul is calling us here to be, to be pure. Don't live a life of impurity. This goes really deep because it's not just about actions, which maybe the sexual morality part, you could think that's about actions. Impurity starts to talk about my attitude, starts to talk about my thoughts. Everything starts to creep in. All of a sudden, I find myself guilty where I can't just say, you know what, that thought crossed my mind, but I didn't act on it. I passed the test. No, you failed because you thought about it. According to God's word, you failed just because it crossed your mind. It shows your sin. Paul then moves on, if that's not enough. And his third thing, he says, covetousness. How often we fail at this. And we could, go, we could continue in the train of thought that I think Paul's talking about again, still, still sexually, but how often we fail, right? Just coveting the opposite sex. Again, something I thought would end when I got married. Realize, no, that sin is still prevalent. Or then you could even take it farther, get away from the sexual side, but just coveting when we have all these other desires. Paul would continue on as he talks about these in these verses, and he says, don't even talk about these things. Don't even joke about these things. So now we've got to the point to where, okay, I'm trying to free myself from this. But then he says, don't even talk about it. Don't even joke about it. Don't even be laughing about these. As John Stott put it in his commentary, Paul's kind of moving from immorality to vulgarity. And I think this is too where we often fail. To be honest, I think it's hard to avoid this type of talk and this type of joking. It's on every channel. It seems to be in every office. It seems to be every single place you go, movies, work, whatever it might be, it's hard to avoid these types of conversations. Yet, I want to remind you, as I've been reminded this week, that is not an excuse for me. And it's not an excuse for you. It's still something that we are to be avoiding as Christians. 
See, when I read through something like this, again, for me, I say, man, as a church, as churches, we push back against this culture and we get so mad at what they are doing out there. But is there really any confusion of why they're like that? Because is the church really doing their job to push against it? And what I mean by that is, are you avoiding these sins? Are you as an individual keeping yourself from these sins or does the world just see you as one of them? I've lived the locker room life. I know the jokes that go on in there. I know the discussion, I know the talk and I've laughed at many of them. And so my friends, no doubt, had to not see much different in me than in them. Even though I would say I was a Christian, still didn't bother me at all to laugh at that joke or to say that thing. And so we wonder, man, why is the world going in this direction? Well, I think it's because the church gladly oftentimes follows. But Paul reminds us here that sin is deceptive. That sin does not accomplish what we think it is going to accomplish. Satan uses deception to show us that sin is good, that sin is helpful, that sin is fun, that there actually is a benefit to it. Just like I said with teenagers, you should have sex before you get married. They say, why? To try it, see if it works. Logically, that starts to make sense. Right? It's like, okay, I can understand this. This does make sense to me. See, this is Satan deceiving us. Paul is telling the church here, this is not true. Do not be deceived by Satan. And he's warning, he's saying, be prepared for Satan's attacks. What Paul is doing here, if you like athletics at all, Paul's pre-gaming us here. That's what he's doing. Before the game, you try to make a plan. You try to have a strategy. You get, you get prepared as best as possible to know what they might do against you. This is what good coaches do. This is what good teams do. And this is what Paul is doing for the body of Christ here. He's saying you need to be prepared and understand what you are walking into when you walk out of this room. You need to be prepared and understand that yes, you are saved by God's grace, but yet you still have sin in your life that you struggle with. And you need to understand that God wants to root that sin out. And you need to root that sin out. You need to deal with it. And so he's not pulling any punches. He's, he's trying to take this very, very seriously. And we must do the same. We've got to be prepared, and we have to take it seriously as we are getting prepared. We need to take our sin very seriously. Think of all the things in life that you try to plan for. Think of all the things in life that you try to avoid. Right? You, you know, if I do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle here. Or I'm not going to go to their house. Why? They're sick. I don't want to get sick. So I'm not going to do that. It just doesn't make sense. It's, it's not worth it to me. And so we plan and we do all these different sort of things to keep ourselves safe and, and secure and sound. But yet a lot of times when it comes to sin, it's just like, eh, it's a big deal. I've been forgiven of my sin. What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal. Because we can't let Satan deceive us into thinking that it's not a big deal because Paul gives us a pretty big danger in these verses of how important sin is. Because he says in here, in verse 5, he says, those who practice these things, what? Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now that's a big phrase. That's a big sentence. Because if you're like me, you're sitting at my desk, you're reading this, you're thinking through it, you're thinking about all the sin that you commit in these areas. And then you read this verse and you see, anybody who does these things does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so you close your Bible. You tell your secretary, I'm leaving. I'm not coming back. I'll see you later. I'm out. Because according to God's word, I'm out. And so again, we say, well, how, how serious should we take sin? I think because of this verse, we need to take it very serious. But we need to ask the question, well, what is happening here? What, this danger, is this really true? That if I'm, if I'm sinning in these ways, if I, if I have sexual sin, if I'm impure, if I'm coveting things, are you telling me that then I cannot have a part of the kingdom of God? I'm telling you that that's what this verse says. And we can't avoid it. We cannot deny it. I can tell you what I believe this means. I think what Paul is getting at I don't think Paul is saying that those who are the children of God, those who've been saved by God's grace, will fall away from him and they will not have a part in his kingdom because of this sin that they've committed. I don't think that's what's being said here. I don't think that's a statement. I think when you interpret scripture with scripture and you see the other, all other parts in scripture that speak very clearly 
That if you've been saved by God's grace, he's not going to let you go even because of yourself. That we can't then say that that's what this verse means. I think what's happening here in this verse is that yes, a child of God will slip. We're gonna slip, we're gonna sin, we are gonna fall short, it's going to happen, but a true child of God cannot keep living in sin with no regret. It's just not part of their life. They are a new creation. And part of that new creation is they just cannot, as God reveals sin to them, they just simply cannot keep living that way with just no regret, saying, whatever. Whatever. And I really would ask you, you really got to do a reality check in your own life, just like I have to do. Say again, Tim, how serious are you about your sin? Is this real to you? Are you really guilty for the sin that you're doing? Are you really trying to turn and repent of this sin because that's what a child of God does? See, I've grown up here. I know how to look right. I know how to play the game. I know what to say. I know how to answer the questions. I'm very good at all these different things. But I have to know my heart. I have to be willing to look into my heart and say, God, reveal it to me. Reveal it to me. Is this really a game? Do I really care? Do I really think that you are great? It's a question only you can answer. It's a question between you and God that only you can answer. I don't want you leaving here today saying, well, I've sinned and I have to be saved again. No, I'm not telling you that. I sin all the time. It's a struggle. But what I have to make sure of is that I'm being faithful to work on that sin, allowing God to reveal it to me and then allowing God to root it out of me and understanding that it's dangerous to live in that way. As we read in verses one and two, children of God will imitate him. And this is what it means to imitate him. We want to be like him so we allow him to rid us of sin. Well, look at verse four. Verse 4 gives us our solution to the fight and this sin. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But notice this. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. It's interesting that Paul would say that thanksgiving is the key to fighting the sins of self-indulgence that we've been talking about so far. I don't think this is really what comes to our mind first. You know, if someone comes to your office and they're dealing with with sexual sin, your first response usually isn't, well, are you actually thankful for the things you got? That's not usually what comes out. Normally you say, well, avoid her, don't talk to her, don't go around here, don't watch those things, right, whatever it might be. But the first place that Paul goes to is he goes to Thanksgiving. And I want you to think about it because it's true. When we live a life of Thanksgiving to God, it combats these sins that Paul has been discussing here. We stop seeking after sexual desires outside of marriage. Why? Because we're thankful for where God has us in our place of life now. So for some of you, that means you're single. That's okay. The Bible talks to us a lot about what it means to be single. It actually tells us it's a gift from God. Paul would say him himself, I'm single, and I'm thankful that I don't have to deal with a wife. I can go and do ministry. That's what Paul says. And so some of you today, you are single, and what you struggle with is you think, I don't want to be single. It's covetousness. That's coveting. This is the place where God has you right now. I don't know if one day you'll get married. I don't know if one day you'll get a spouse. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you this. Right now, God has you single. And if you would just be thankful for it, it would help you fight sin. For those of us who are married, you know what would be the biggest thing to help us fight sexual sin within our marriage relationship? To actually be thankful for your spouse, the one that God gave you. You wouldn't keep looking. You wouldn't keep wondering. You wouldn't keep searching. Because you'd be completely thankful that God has given me her or him. It takes work to live that life, though. It takes work to live a life of thanksgiving, to constantly be thanking God for the things that he has given us. It would get rid of the crude jokes in our life. We'd understand that that's not a part of us, I don't even think that's funny because I'm so thankful for what I have. That's not funny to me. It becomes a problem when you hear those things. No. If I laugh at that, it actually minimizes what God has given me here. The good gifts that I have here. So there's no room for it in our life. If we live a life of thanksgiving, being a coveter, someone who's coveting everything, would would go away. Because we're thankful for what we have. Think about how often in your life you have thought, 
just a little bit more and I'll be right where I need to be. Have you ever got there? Ever. Last weekend was one of my least favorite weekends in the year. Fallback time. I hate it. For some of you, it's your favorite time because you think you get an extra hour of sleep. Let me ask you a week later, what did it do for you? How do you feel? As parents, we often say, if I could just get a little more sleep, life would be much more doable. Really? I mean, even in something as silly as that, we realize that our wants and our desires, coveting something like sleep, actually falls short because it doesn't solve all of our problems. You still wake up and your back hurts, your knees hurt, you have a headache, and you have a full list of chores you still got to do that day. See, what I think Paul is pointing at is if we would actually, as children of God, think about the things that he has given us that we have to be thankful for, many of these sins would be a lot easier to avoid and to deal with. But yet, too often we don't live this life of thanksgiving Paul moves on in verses 8 through 10. i got to go quick. And he says, we have been moved from darkness to light. And it's a good reminder after reading these things again and wanting to close the book up and say, I'm out, I quit, I fail. Paul reminds us as a church, as believers, he says, listen, for at one time you were darkness. But notice what it says. It says, but now you are what? You are light. Not that you have been brought to the light, not that you know the light or you understand the light, Paul actually says, as a Christian, someone saved by the grace of God, you are light. You've been freed completely from the darkness, and you now are light. And so what has happened? Jesus has taken our hopelessness and given us a sure hope in him. We were once slaves to sin. We were unable to honor God in anything we said or anything we've done, unable even to understand our situation. But what God has done is God has made us light He's opened our eyes to the truth of his word, opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel, and he saved us by his grace. He has saved our soul. He has took something that was dead and useless and brought life to it. <laughs> that is where we find ourselves as believers. I'm so thankful that Paul reminds us of this after that sin section. Because again, if you're like me, any section I read in scripture and it starts listing sins, it's like, check, check, Check. I seem to never get to one to where it's like, oh, I kind of got that covered. No. And so I feel so degraded. I feel so down. But then Paul reminds me again, listen, you were darkness, but God has made you light. He has saved you. And what he is saying is live that way. Live this way. Walk as children of light, he reminds us in verses 8 through 10. And if you do that, fruit is going to follow. And so what follows from all of this, if you act like light, is all of a sudden we see God working in our life and the fruit follows. People will be drawn to it. As you faithfully get rid of sin in your life and you work and you continue to pray and read God's word and follow his word, people will be drawn to it. You will grow in the Lord. But you have to understand this too. All of this takes time. It takes time. Some of you have been on a journey with the Lord for a really long time. You've been, you've been saved by God's grace, you could say, for 15, 20, 50, whatever years. Some of you have, could say that. And I think you should say amen to when I say it takes time to grow in the Lord. It's not some quick fix. God's word is not some band-aid we quickly put on to try to just mend it for a little bit. No, it takes, a, it takes a long time as God molds us and makes us into his image. And Paul tells us here, look in verse 10. He tells us this about the light. You are light. And then he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is something that we're called to do, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And listen, only people of the light can do this. You can only do this if you have the light to know the will of the Lord. And I would say this, and this might be shocking to you, I don't think this is a hard thing for Christians to do, to discern the will of the Lord. I really don't. Again, it's a question we get a lot as pastors. How do I know what the Lord is calling me to do? I think that's a silly question. For true children of the Lord who are actually faithfully doing the things that he's called them to do, reading his word, 
being a part of the church, sitting under preaching and teaching, doing these things that we know that we are supposed to do, I think it becomes very easy to discern the will of the Lord. Now, there's times when I step into something and I think, I know the will of the Lord is this, but I know the will of Tim is this. That's when it gets hard. That's when it gets difficult because that battle is raging within. How great is God to you today, Tim? Yes, those things are hard, but to actually know what does God want here, I don't think always is very difficult. As we live separately from the world, it also helps us discern God's will. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul would say it again there. It is our task to discern the will of God. God has given us his word to know and to store into our hearts. And then he promises, he promises us this, that he will lead us and that he will guide us. How? According to his word. Psalm 119, verse 105. I remember quoting this in Vacation Bible School. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Listen, that's not just some quaint, cute little saying. This is not just something we like to see our kids act out, give them a little lantern or whatever, and they walk. This is, this is God's word guiding and directing me. It's actually truth. You cannot walk in this world without it and say, I know what I'm doing. It's impossible. And what God has done as Christians, he has stored his word where? In our hearts, it says. So that we can then go and discern. But yes, it takes work. Yes, it takes maturity in the Lord. But he enables us to do this, and he's faithful to us. John Stott has a quote in his commentary on this. In talking about chapters 4 and 5, he says, These chapters are a stirring summons to the unity and purity of the church. But they are more than that. Their theme is the integration of Christian experience, which is what we are, Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. They emphasize that being, thought, and action belong together and must never be separated. For what we are governs how we think, and how we think determines how we act. That quote for me was kind of troubling. What we think determines how we act. I know how I often act. So then it makes me question how am I thinking? Which makes me question then what do I really believe? Where really is my heart in all this? How important is God to me? So we get to verses 11 through 14. Paul closes. And he says in verse 11 and 12, take no part in the dark. Again, Paul would say we shouldn't even speak of the sins that are committed in secret, let alone partake in them. He says it's too unbecoming to even speak of those things that are happening there. And he says, our task as Christians is to do this. Expose the unfruitfulness of the dark. He says that in the second part of verse 11. And this is how we do that. As we are faithful to imitating God, and as we are faithful to living as light, this is what's going to happen naturally. We are going to expose the darkness in people's lives. It's natural for this to happen. While I failed in many ways in high school, no doubt, as a Christian, I do remember this. My friends all knew that I was a Christian. They knew that there were certain things that I stood for. And it became very unwelcoming to me that I stopped getting invited to things. My friends who were my friends, who I loved doing things with, I would find out on Monday that they all got together on Saturday. But I never got a call. And it hurt. Like, what the, what, what's wrong with me? But then you start to find out why. They don't want the Christian there. I remember a couple times they did invite me. And it was awkward to talk to drunk people about religion. That's what they wanted to talk about. I'm like, why are we talking about this? I think it's because they were being exposed. I think they were realizing that the things that they were doing were not right. And that I wasn't going to partake in them. And again, I failed in a lot of different ways, but all of a sudden they wanted to talk about these things as if it was justifying them. I understand that what I'm doing is wrong, but I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll make it all good, they would say. And they were trying to justify themselves before me as if I cared. 
I can't justify you. I'm, I'm, you got to tell your sin to me. I know you're sinning. I'm probably sinning being here with you. I'm being honest. But I really think this was playing out. The darkness was being exposed. And I'm sure you've had this too if you've been a Christian very long at all. All of a sudden, the people around you change when you're around them because they know you're a Christian. And sometimes they will say, this is out of respect for you, and that's good and great, but I don't think that's the real thing. I think it's because they know what they're doing is sinful and wrong against the holy God. And they know that you stand for something different. And now listen, you also know this, people will not always respond well when they are exposed by the light. They're not always going to say, well, out of respect for you, I'm going to do this. No, oftentimes what will happen is they will rage against you. Even though we're loving to them, even though we are kind to them, even though we are caring for them, they are still going to oftentimes respond in a way that is not kind and loving. And listen, church, that's okay. It's okay if they do that. We're told they're going to do that. Because when darkness is exposed, we understand that God works in those things and we trust that even as they rage against us, that God is working in their life. So we have to be assured of that regardless how they respond. Be sure of this. God is at work. And God uses our faithfulness as evangelism. He uses our faithfulness as a way to share with the world that God is real and that he changes lives. I want to read one last quote for you. It's from Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, This is out of his commentary on here. But he talks about Paul and Stephen. And he talks about how Stephen's stoning had to have had an impact in Paul's life because Paul was there. So he says this. He says, Paul had seen this principle of evangelism at work in his own life. In the Acts of the Apostles, his conversion is set within the context of the courageous witness of Stephen. But behind the account of Stephen's trial and death lies an almost unnoticed fact. He and Saul almost certainly belonged to the same Jewish synagogue group and indeed to the same generation. The young Saul of Tarsus, who strived so earnestly to excel others in everything he did, had probably witnessed the transformation of Stephen's life. He had certainly heard Stephen speak about Christ. Perhaps he found it impossible to contradict the power and reality of what he heard and saw. Stephen was like light. In fact, Luke comments that his face was like the face of an angel. Saul must have felt himself exposed, even if he could not articulate exactly why. So, he reacted in fury, like an infant screaming because it does not get its own will and knows no other way to express itself. So it often is. We should never forget that as we live our lives as light in the world, quiet and consistent godliness can provoke deep anger and hostility. As it says in Acts 26, 14, It is hard to kick against the goads. This is what I think I would urge us, though, as Christians. Don't respond back as infants. Don't respond back with rage as the world throws at us. When we say, hey, this is wrong, and they rage against us, we don't respond back in a way of of rage and infant-like attitude of, until I get my way, you mean nothing to me. No, we don't. We don't have an impact in the world in that way. The way that God uses Christians is just like he used Stephen. Stephen shares the gospel with a group of people, and then he kneels there as they throw rocks at him and kill him. But yet God uses that in a mighty way, in a very mighty way. And for us as Christians, we stand on the shoulders of martyrs all throughout history who stood for the word of God, who who shared the word of God faithfully and true, but yet would be willing to die for the word of God. These are the things that God uses, and so we need to be faithful, just as they were faithful. Yes, being willing to be light in this world, to expose sin. And this sin will become visible as the light exposes it. But then this is also according to God's word, when the dead are raised. Look at the end. Look at verse 14. Hopefully you leave on a very encouraging note. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, 
Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Do you remember in your life, Christian, when you heard those words? Hey, awake, O sleeper. Do you remember for the first time when you thought, I actually am sinning against the holy God? Do you remember for the very first time when you realized in your head, if I were to die today, I would go to hell because I'm separated from God because of my sin. Do you remember that? Do you remember when the light began to shine on you? But then do you also remember that when the light shined on you, God did not leave you there? He didn't just say, awake, O sleeper, but what does he say? Arise. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is the same thing. This is the same message that we have for the world today. Yes, as we expose sin to the world, understand this. What God is doing is he's calling out to those who are dead and saying, arise. Arise. You don't know who those people are who are going to arise. I don't know who those people are who are going to arise. Therefore, I'm called to let them all know. I'm called to live my life in faithfulness to the Lord, rooting sin out of my life, letting him work in my life to grow me into his image. And what it says is as I'm faithfully doing this, what is obviously going to happen is it's going to expose darkness in other people, and God will use that to raise them from the dead as well. That's what we have to be faithful to do. And so I think one of the things that we can leave with is if you're here today and you know, you're, you're a grandmother and you've been praying for your grandchildren's salvation or you're a parent and you've been praying for your children's or you've been playing, praying for this guy at work that you've been working with, all these different things, that's good. You need to be, continue praying for those people. But one of the things that God will use the most to help them to see the truth is you being faithful in your walk with the Lord, obeying the word of the Lord, As you do that, no doubt it will start to expose darkness in their life. And the Bible tells us that God will use that to call out to these people and to say, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Let us as a church be faithful to that. Let us be willing to confess sin. Let us be willing to deal with sin. And why? Because we sing songs like, How Great Is Our God. And when we sing it, we actually mean it. We don't just sing it because it's pretty or it's nice. We sing it because we really think, oh, if you only understood how great our God is, you would fall before him. Let's bow. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word this morning. God, you know our hearts and you know our minds. You know everything. And God, you know how difficult it is for me to get to a passage like this because I see my struggles so clearly And God, the tendency then is to think, how in the world could God love me? I'm so far from him. I have so much sin in my life, so many things that I struggle with. And so God, I'm sure there's some here this morning who feel the same way. But God, I thank you for the reminder that reminded me, Tim, you once were darkness. But because of the work of Christ in your life, because of the work that Christ did in his life, because of the work that he accomplished on the cross, because of the work that he accomplished in the grave and breaking those chains of sin and death, then because of that, you are light, not darkness. I'm thankful for that reminder. God, I pray for those Christians here this morning who struggle walking that line of repentance and grace. Every day in their life seems like a struggle. Maybe they're constantly guilty for their sin. God, I pray that you would free them of that guilt to help them to see that Christ has nailed that guilt to the cross. But God, I also pray for those other Christians here this morning who too often walk in freedom and never even think about repentance anymore. They struggle with even feeling guilty ever about the sin in their life. God, I pray that you would help them to see that they are out of bounds as well. That as Christians, sin shouldn't be a part of our life. And as it is, that we are willing to go before God to seek forgiveness of our sins, understanding that you will forgive us because of what Jesus has done. And so God, as we walk this line, as I said, of 
of guilt and shame, but also of grace and freedom. We want to be faithful to you. God, continue to mold us and make us into your image. Continue to help us to understand that even in those times when it's difficult and it hurts, that you have good for us. And the good is that we can be more like you. And so God, help us to strive for that. Help us that, that to be who we are as individual Christians, but also as a church. People who are faithful, steadily faithful, each and every single day, waking up again to fight the good fight of faith, to do the things that you have called us to do. And God, I pray that as we do this, I do pray selfishly that we would see fruit as a result. Fruit in our own lives, but also that we'd see our loved ones coming to know you as their Lord and Savior. Our friends coming to know you as their Lord and Savior. And so God, we pray for that this morning. God, as we sing this song to you here at the end, help us to honor you with it. Help us to sing it to your praise and to your worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.